Our sermon text this evening is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. This is God's holy word. Please give careful attention to the reading of it. And you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. They don't make tough guy films like they used to in the 90s. It was always a bit of a silly genre where a one-man army could commando his way through an entire mercenary military to save his daughter. The last action heroes of that time would face a tougher audience at the box office today for fear that they might glorify toxic masculinity. Apparently, though, not everyone feels that tough guys are expendable because the genre has found some revived popularity in the straight-to-streaming films Extraction 1 and Extraction 2. For me, a bed rest on doctor's orders was recently the perfect excuse for a kind of B-budget film that doesn't demand much intellectually from its viewer. It doesn't try to be anything more philosophical or preachy than previously special forces family man down on his luck who's called to extract his sister-in-law and kids from an abusive husband who happens to be at the top crime syndicate boss. As if one man taking the entire Georgian crime syndicate were not enough, though, the trickiness of this extraction is further complicated by the fact that the oldest son that he's trying to set free has bought his father's lies, idolized him, and wants to follow his corrupt stepfather's footsteps. Well, in our passage this evening, something very similar is going on because in our salvation, our rebellion and allegiance to the world was likewise a tricky bit. Our Lord did not find us ready and willing to change kingdoms. In the last couple sections of Ephesians, Paul was talking about the hope of our inheritance as adopted children into the kingdom of God. One part of that hope being the manifold blessings that it involves. And then, while reporting on his specific prayers to the Ephesian church, he explained that he really wants them to understand the second part of that hope, which is the superabundant power of God and Christ to bring his people into that manifold inheritance. So our hope is not romantically against the odds, 
It's not a marvelous hope just because the spiritual riches are unparalleled. It's also marvelous because it's true and sure. But while we have good reason to trust that Jesus was and is and will remain up to the task of extracting us from the kingdom of darkness, Paul addresses the self-doubt that we may feel for the traitorous disposition God found us in and the looming disobedience that we struggle with. We have looming memories and patterns of thought and sinking, uncomfortable feelings telling us that we are unfit for such a heavenly kingdom. And while we may or may not articulate it, we can sometimes feel that deep down, in time, the gavel will fall and the charade will end. And the chains of our old man hold us back from fully walking as we know is fitting for a child of God. We know that so often we fall short of the kind of continual joy that Jesus walked in as he carefully obeyed his Father in every way. And so now Paul addresses the self-doubt elephant in the room. He looks at our dismal obedience, obedience that we were challenged and edified to walk in this morning. And Paul will say tonight, I want you to pause for just a moment here and set aside thinking about what to obey. There are no imperatives to act tonight. Instead, Paul is telling us, okay, for right now, I want you to let go of thinking about ways that you might do better. Paul wants us to understand that there are imperatives throughout the Bible, that is, commands to to do this or that, good action or deed. We might think of 1 John when the apostle of love was drilling into us that perfect love is a doing love. But tonight, Paul says, I just want you, at this point in my epistle, to relax in thinking about any specific obligations. The imperative here is listen and understand why we obey, so that for the rest of your life you'll have a foundation for thinking as a Christian, a foundation that will free you to rest in Christ as you work in Christ. And so he begins in verse 1, and in the beginning of verse 2, He says, and you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now, as we get into this first verse, Paul unsettles us. He's like a doctor when you've been anticipating in the waiting room, and and now he's going to tell you the situation for better or for worse. And instead of getting right to the point, instead of telling you in the first sentence if, if you do or don't have this condition, or if your loved one will or will not make it, he starts explaining something about the medical science. And you're, you're holding your breath and you're starting to really want to sort of cut him off and exclaim, you know, let's have the news. What's the point? But something holds you back and you listen, but anxiously, and you do your best to focus. Well, sometimes a messenger may, make their po- may delay their point because they're just oblivious. Or, or sometimes they, they mean well and they're just trying to pad the news. But rhetorically, a skilled order might do such a thing in a way to draw you in, to make everything else fade away and force you to pay attention. And that's what Paul does in these first few verses. He gives us no subject, no action that the subject is taking. He's just setting up this dreary picture of how, he probably, of how we previously walked in the world. Later, he explains more about this in, in chapter 4, about how we walked in the futility of our mind with a darkened understanding alienated from the life of God, ignorant of the nature of the heart that beats within us, callous, sensual, 
greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Paul wants us pondering and mulling over the futility of our lives apart from Christ. And for a short time, he gives us no resolution. He doesn't mean to be mean. He has a purpose. But nonetheless, he begins, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, there are several ways in which sinners are dead. The penalty Adam warned about in the, in the garden was that if he sinned, he would die. And while he was not immediately struck dead, all sin, unless dealt with, leaves the sinner marked for death. We know I imagine that sinners are naturally marked for death in this way, like how in a Western you might hear someone vow to their enemy, you are as good as dead. Meaning that just, I not, might not get to it right now, but you are going to get what's coming to you. And of course, our years have been shortened so that our bodies wear out as a reminder in this life that we are still wrecked with the repercussions of our first parent's sin. But that death is not precisely what Paul is talking about here. This death is in the realm of how we walk, what we will and desire and how we act it out and why. And we get this clarification in verse 2. He says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once or formerly walked. Many distinguished uh, trespasses and sins uh, distinguish trespasses and sins by saying that a sin is basically missing the mark and a trespass is a willful knowing sin, so it's worse. And there's something to this, but that's not precisely the distinction between these two related ideas. A trespass is indeed crossing a line when you knew better. It's hopping a fence when there was a no trespassing sign clearly visible. Spiritually, this means that a trespass happens when the law is present. And Paul tells us this plainly in Romans 4.15. He says, For the law brings wrath, but where there's no law, there's no transgression. And amazingly, Paul told us in Ephesians 1.7 that in Christ we have the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. The idea is that a transgression breaks the known law and has consequences of curse and punishment as a result. The punishment in our context here, though, is not just termination of life or eventual termination of life, but a deathly corruption of the will that man was cursed with as he must play the fool, with being the walking dead in our minds and actions. But while the transgression is a specific violation of a stated law, like don't eat of this thing or take off your sandals, sin is is conceptually not as specific. Sin is more related to a heart that is antithetical to righteousness. It is lawlessness. It is a state of the heart. So in a sense, if your mom told you that you're supposed to eat your specific dinner tonight and you say, no, well, that's a transgression of mom's law. And it's related to the sinful practice of being rebellious in general against your parents' good good desires. Well, similarly with God, transgressions are acts of direct disobedience, and it's the willful practice of disrespecting and disregarding what God takes pleasure in. So sin is very much tied to the idea of a pattern of walking, and as, as 1 John chapter 3 tells us, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Well, we were once lawless, uh, verse 2 continues, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, 
the Spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Formerly, our sins did not grate against our new nature. They, they made us feel bad. They made us live maybe life, lives that were less productive. They made our goals more difficult to attain. But the grief they caused did not bring us to true repentance or change our nature. We did not truly care what God thought. We did not truly wish to change for his honor and glory. And the self-help books we may have read did not help us apprehend the mercy of God in Christ. Our overall disposition never turned from rebellion to faith. And so our patterns of life chase the coattails of the world and of the devil who have the same disposition that we did. First, the course of this world is the whole fallen system of this world in contrast with the future kingdom, which has begun and and will come. Large, broken, human institutions with negative, systemic influence are the subject of much attention in today's culture. And yet, to whatever degree such institutions are corrupt, they pale in comparison to the spiritual darkness of the spiritual system of the age that spans from the fall of Adam all the way to the return of Christ. Second, we chase the coattails of the prince of the power of the air, that is, the ruler of the realm of this age. You may recall in a previous section that Paul said that Jesus has a name that is above every name with superabundant power over all real or imagined magical or spiritual realms. The people of Paul's time were preoccupied with controlling these realms or powers through rituals or amulets or especially gaining knowledge over their names to manipulate them to their benefit or at least to ward them off. Now, growing first century Christians in Paul's audience were learning more and more about how to distinguish between truly spiritual and the merely superstitious and would have picked up that the prince of the ruler of the power of the air is a reference to Satan. And so the kind of black and white clarity that the Apostle John speaks of is echoed here. There are two kingdoms and indeed two families, and while the Holy Spirit is at work in our walk, another spirit is at work in the sons of disobedience. And we can glean from this something our post-mill, optimistic, triumphal brothers would do well to understand that Christ's superabundant power over these forces is absolute, but that does not always mean that they will have no sway in this age. They have no power over our Lord's ability to keep you to the end and bring you into your inheritance, but we should not expect to see all influence of Satan halted yet, particularly over those who are still plugged into the matrix of sorts of this world system. Instead, Christ rules in this age in the midst of his enemies and ours. Verse 3 among whom we all once lived, that is, we all once conducted our lives in the passions or the lusts of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. There's an emphasis on we here, as Paul stresses that it's not just the Greeks with their spiritual superstitions. If this fallen age and the ruler of this age is where our heart lies, then whether Gentile or Jew alike, Princeton, Harvard, Community College, Trade School, GED, Barista, or Billionaire, the heart will live out one's life in accordance with the will of the flesh. The flesh does not refer so much to the physical body 
as if the body itself were by somehow evil by nature. Instead, the flesh is the deepest part of fallen man. And it's the old part of the new man that's somehow still a part of us, but which is destined to be cast off one day. The flesh is the seat of our unholy passions, and especially of the rationalizing of our actions. And oh man, are we good at rationalizing our sin. The law of God is so deeply ingrained that even in fallen man, our desire to be justified before God, even as we sin, is so strong that we can jump through all kinds of intellectual hoops to protect our sin, which is all that fallen man can do apart from Christ. The best fallen man can do is muster what theologians often call civil good works, works that are practical for survival or for a sense of happiness or comfort. But fallen man cannot, however, apart from being revived in Christ, work unto God by faith according to his law and primarily for God's glory and the honor of Christ's name. And actually the depravity of mankind here as an allusion to Genesis 8.21, where we read, And then the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma. The Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. So the Lord does not restrain from striking down the fallen world because He doesn't restrain because fallen man is somehow better in nature than those that were left outside of the ark. He does so only because the rainbow serves as a sign for him that he covenanted not to destroy the world of men again. Yet, mankind by nature, just as we once were, remains children of wrath. Now, it's been said that the next two verses of this book encapsulate really the whole Bible. Verse 4 begins, but God. Finally, the relief begins to pour in some with our depravity and inability and unwillingness to be redeemed, laid bare. God intervenes with a bold extraction from the kingdom of darkness. No mere knocking on the door of our hearts and timidly asking us if we might please just trust Jesus. Paul's Slog was intentional, but now we're on the other side. And a black backdrop was laid down, like a black felt, uh, like black felt uh, mats or, or like for diamonds are showed off in a jewelry store. And the diamond is, is that even though and even while we were as the world in our inclinations and pattern of, of life, God would not drop the final gavel of death on all who deserve it. Many will indeed face that second death and the final judgment. And they will never know what it's like to have the light of their hearts ignited in new life. But for some whom God set apart, grace is not only just a ticket to heaven, but also grace is for obedience to be renewed in this life. And the only reason that God does this is that, as verse 4 continues, He is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us. And this love was so profoundly abundant that he was willing to endure incredible opposition. 
And of course, we think first of, of the cross as the opposition that our Lord endured for all of us. But here, this entire age from the fall of Adam is get, to, 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 his, to Christ's return is given as evidence of what God willfully endured. Romans 9 says, What if God, desiring to show his, his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? In verse 5, Paul satisfyingly reconnects with verse 1. Even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. But whereas as in verse 1, he said, you are the walking dead, here he clarifies that we are the walking dead. Unity is the theme here. And the grand prayer of Paul for the Ephesian church, while he was restrained in prison from being physically with them, while he, while he can't laugh and cry with them, or take the Lord's Supper with them, or land the perfect dap with his broskies, he can, remain, he can remind them that their unity with one another is built on three unshakable realities in verses 5 and 6. God co-made us alive, co-raised us, and co-seated us with Christ. The idea is that everything Christ earned and merited by willingly enduring this age, taking its abuses and injustices, and yet not justifying sin, everything has been united to us as if we had done it also. He, of all people, could have justified sinning as a crutch to make things easier, to self-care, or to just make himself some bread while starving nearly to death as he battled the prince of the power of the air in the wilderness, in the desert. And yet he would not. He would not return evil for evil. He showed himself to be the son of his father in obedience. And somehow, in the mystery of the wisdom of God, all of it was imputed to us, so that as he was raised after three days, so his people are raised in a new life of obedience and will be raised to sit with him as co-princes. In this life, then, Paul says in Romans 6, we are raised that we might walk in newness of life. So that in the coming ages, verse 7, he might actually show us off as the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. It was common in ancient times for statues and trophies won for the gods to be displayed in temples. And yet for God, we are his special treasure and a great joy to him in Christ. And indeed, we are an inheritance for Christ as he is an inheritance for us. So as the Lord boasted to Satan about his servant Job, he will boast of us. In verse 8, Paul picks up the language of verse 5. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, meaning that it does not originate from you. It is the gift of God. Not only were we pardoned then of the wrath that we had earned walking in sin and transgression, we are given favor we did not earn. But not only did the work of Christ not originate from us, neither did the faith. It too was not our doing but a gift applied to us through the miraculous and effectual work of the Spirit. Faith, then, is not some kind of special category of work, then. 
Some conflate the two, but the whole point is that none of this, verse 9, is as a result of work, excuse me, so that no one may boast. Finally then, Paul concludes not with an action of devotion or obedience for us to carry out, but a summary of what he wants us to understand, to hold on to, to meditate on. Verse 10, we are his workmanship. We are his new creation, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. The language here more literally means that we should start walking in them because our sanctification is not going to be anything like perfect this side of heaven, but it's something we start. And our growth and our good works will be greatly purified when we understand that while we lament the sin which still remains in us, our good works cannot make God love us more. God delights in us because our Savior is a mighty warrior who did not meekly ask if he could make his home with us. Instead, he stood against this entire age with much long-suffering and patience and went to the cross to extract us as his treasures. May he be the one, then, that boasts in us, and may we rest as we walk in the good works that he has prepared for us and all for his glory. Amen. Let's pray.